Well, again, good morning, everyone. You're doing good? Got a Bible? Hold the word up high. Come on. Turn to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you're a guest at Fullness, we're so glad that you're here today. Pray that God has already blessed you. But pray that as we study his word together, that he will bless you even more. And not just bless you, um, the word of God is active, meaning it's working in our hearts and in our lives. So I, I pray that as we study the word of God, which is what we're going to do today, uh, actively study God's word, that it will touch your heart and life. We're in a series on First and Second Thessalonians called Faith forward. Uh, and the idea being, the truth being what we know is that we live in perilous, uncertain times. Can I get an amen? amen. I mean, just I, every seven days I could review the last seven days. Uh, and, and it just seems more uncertain today than it did seven weeks, seven days ago. Uh, things are increasingly uncertain. And it seems as if the ground below us is in many ways shaking. And the question is, how do we as followers of Jesus Christ stand in faith in shaking and perilous times? And so that's been the premise. And honestly, when I thought, prayed through this series when I was away this summer and really felt led to do this, it's picking up in the passages next week, honestly, where I first felt led. Uh, because next week, um, which I've given to Scott, by the way, because I'm so nice. I do this all the time. I give the best passages uh, to the staff. <laughs> anyway, and some of the hardest. Um, we're going to start talking about the return of Christ, the days ahead, the rapture, the man of lawlessness. Uh, things that uh, a lot of people spend a lot of time looking at, but we only think things are uncertain. Wait till we see real uncertain. Wait till we see real peril. Wait till we see real persecution. And we need faith to be developed in our hearts now because, believe it or not, these are the salad years. By that, I mean, I don't know if some of you even know the reference I'm giving, but these are the good days. These are the solid times, believe it or not, and we need to be developing strong faith now while God has given it to us. So in Thessalonians, Paul is writing back to a church that he has uh, established, but he was only there for three weeks. Three weeks. And in those three weeks, he at least taught them something about the second coming of Jesus because now they're enamored with it, the idea of his second coming. And I thought back, if I only had three weeks to start a church, what would, what would I preach? Now, honestly, the man of lawlessness and second coming would probably not be in my top three. But that's what Paul did. As a matter of fact, this is an important week for us as a church. It's an important week because on October 14th, um, 1992, 
that was the day that um, Vestavia Hills Baptist Church voted to allow us to start as a church. That was the day this church was approved. And you're like, wow, he's, he's good with dates. No, I'm terrible with dates. I only know that because the day before that, my son was born on October 13th, and he turns 30 this Thursday, and he was born on a Tuesday, and then on Wednesday night, the church there approved uh, our starting. So at the retreat this weekend on Friday, we'll celebrate uh, for those going on the marriage retreat. By the way, we have uh, 30 couples, 60 people going on the marriage retreat. It's going to be awesome, so it's going to be a, t- a lot of fun. Pray for those who are, who are going on this retreat. Uh, you're going to have a great time. Trust me, it's going to be fun and insightful, and you'll be blessed. For some of you, it's going to change your whole future. I'm so confident that 24 hours is going to change your life. Um, Where was I? Oh, we started the church 30 years ago. And so I went back and thought, what were my first four sermons at fullness? Now, listen, that's not bad, Jonathan. Don't go bad on me. Don't you love Jonathan sitting up here worshiping, holding a baby? Do you remember when Jonathan, we couldn't hold him still on the stage? Do you remember that? And now he's a dad. (laughs) So, yes. Anyway, where was I? Oh, my first four sermons. That's what happens when you heckle the pastor. Um, The first four sermons I looked at, um, I went back and looked at the first four, which were actually in February and March of 1993. The first sermon I preached, now this was before we officially opened. This was uh, like the pre-opening, which we did for a month leading up to Easter. The first, and you know what's incredible about these? You're going to see, I, you're like, well, just get to it. It can't be that big a deal. These four, and I didn't even know it at the time, have become life messages for this church. The first sermon I preached actually was more like a Bible study, and it was on preparation and participation from Luke chapter 2, the story of Simeon. Uh, This is long before I even had the painting of Simeon that hangs in my office called Simeon's Moment. The second sermon I preached was on vision uh, from Nehemiah 1 and 2. Uh, the third sermon was, this is pretty incredible, I, I, I was moved by this myself, was on uh, immeasurably more uh, from um, Ephesians, the prayer of Paul in Ephesians that God is going to give us. That, that's when I was still, de- we were still deciding on, I was still deciding on doing the benediction because I really wanted a traditional kind of benediction to speak over this new church every single week. And I think that was the first Sunday that I did it, that I spoke that and have spoken that benediction over this church every Sunday since. And then the fourth sermon, I thought it just it was on uh, moving from death to life, the story of the gospel from Luke chapter 24 and the power of the gospel from Romans 1. Now, I think those are four pretty good starters, actually, because I've preached them probably hundred times since then. I'll probably preach one of those today um, because they are really important messages, I believe, for who we are as a church and followers of Jesus Christ. Paul only had three weeks in Thessalonica. He preached a sermon. He has to flee town because of persecution. He goes to Berea. 
then he goes to Athens, and then he goes to Corinth, as we've looked at. Now he's writing them back from Corinth. And by the way, what you see in Thessalonians and what we see here are all kernels of truths that Paul will preach again over and over and over again. I'm sure somewhere Larry has the tapes from my first three or four sermons, which I, I don't think I could bear to listen to. Um, 1 Thessalonians is most likely, almost all scholars agree, this is Paul's first letter, the first one he wrote. So you see things in Thessalonians that you'll be like, well, that's just like in Romans. Well, Paul is developing in this letter ideas that you're going to hear again and again and again and again in his letters. And today what happens in 1 Thessalonians 4, as is Paul's tradition of writing and he's still developing it, he starts with kind of a theological premise, like here's who God is, here's what God has done. Now, in light of that, in view of God's mercy, because of, he uses these transition phrases, because of what God has done, here's what you're to do. Here's the life you're to live, and that's where we are today. And as I was doing this sermon, I'm like, man, this sermon is just so basic. Every so often I'm like, wow, I'm almost embarrassed to say this. Everybody knows this. But you know what? Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, hey, you know this, but I'm going to tell you this again because it's that big a deal. So I'm just being like Paul. Um, I'm telling you what you, you should know, do know, but probably need to know just again. So just hang on. Here we go. 1 Thessalonians 4. I want to read these 12 verses in context, get the whole flow, then take them apart real quick because I love doing the word, preaching the word of God. It says this, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live. By the way, when Paul says finally, he doesn't mean finally. He's like every pastor, you know, <laughs> this is my last point. And then 30 minutes later, uh, he's going, it's still going. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God and that... It, it, and that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instructions does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet, we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now, very basic Christianity 101, 
But oh my goodness, if you really read it, you're like, wait a minute, Paul. Let's look at his instructions about what does it mean. Now that we're followers of Jesus Christ, in light of what God has done for us, in light of the gospel, in light of his love and our relationship with him and we, with each other, what do we do? Well, the first point is, please God. Please God. Here's what he says. And I made it in yellow so you could see it. <laughs> Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. What is Christianity all about? What is the core of our faith? Again, we've said this over and over again for 30 years. This is not about following rules. This is not about, this is not about you have to go to church so many times a month or a week or a year. We, we, we think it's good for you to go to church. We think it's great for the body of Christ to gather. But if you're using it as a score sheet, if you're using how much money you give to the church as a score sheet, if you're using any kind of rules like I don't steal, I don't kill, I don't, if this is your score sheet, so to speak, you've missed the point. Because the point isn't to keep score. The point is to please God. Christianity is in its basic nature. Thank you. It's relationship with God. And if we love God and know that he loves us, then our our goal should be to please him, right? Our goal should be to glorify him. Jesus even said, I always do what pleases the Father. And I only do what pleases the Father. We need to... I, I know this is, again, I keep saying it's so basic, but... Just the last couple of weeks, God has re, per, refocused this in my life. Maybe since I was gone for a little while and got back into his word and started just trying to talk about the love of the Father. Once I was overwhelmed by the love of God, it gave me a love for God. And not only did it give me a love for God, but because I love him, it, 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 it aimed me to say, man, I love him. How, how can I please him? We're having this marriage retreat this weekend. I'll talk a little bit more about it in just a moment. But I have found that in relationship with my wife, that if... If I just aim to please her because I'm obligated to figure out a way to please her, it doesn't really go that great. You know what I mean? First of all, she is dang smart. And she figures out, you know what? He is only doing the dishes because. You can fill in the blank. But he's only doing the dishes because of this or that or whatever. But if I, in my love for her, I say, what can I do to please her? It changes everything. The crux of it is the love that I have in the relationship. The pleasing her are 
my best shot, and I'm a clueless idiot at times, so um, I don't know what pleases her, but I'm trying to figure it out still. But at the same time, I, I'm not doing it to manipulate her. I'm doing it because I love her. How many times do we try and please God in order to manipulate God? And do you think God's not smarter than the smartest person you know, whoever that is? You think he doesn't know? Oh, bless him. You know, what, a, what an idiot. As he looks down on us. No, I think he loves us too, and even more. We need to please God. It should be our aim. Second point, maybe harder than the first one. It's uh, control yourself. Control yourself. Here's what Paul says in verses 3 through 8. I already read them to you. I'm just reviewing. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That's, sanctification is the process of being made holy, living a holy life. And what is his example? That you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. So I'm going to read forward in just a moment, but I, I, I want you to really get the point that he is saying, because of the Spirit of God who indwells you, you have the ability to have self-control. And some people, I, I've had it before where I, people have told me, I just, I have no self-control. I can't stop myself. I understand the idea there, but my, my heart wants to cry out with them to say, oh, no, but you can. We can. We can because we have someone greater living in me than who he then is in the world. You have someone greater in you than you. And as a result, with the Spirit of God working his way out from inside of you, you have the ability to have self-control. And we think sexual immorality is uh, the new kid on the block. That we must have it hard, harder and more difficult than any other period in history. And um, I think the New Testament if, would show us over and over again that that is not indeed the case. I mean, they, they had figured out a way to make sex, sexual immorality not only profitable and acceptable and religious. I mean, that's like the trifecta to, to make it where it's, it's, hey, this is good for society. You know, the, uh, the temple, we have this sexual immorality, and uh, it's, it's, it's really an act of worship, and, and uh, we can make money off of it. It's one of the reasons they always got mad when Christianity comes into a city. Things that the devil was using in people's lives to both make money and money as a means of control starts to get shattered. And as a result, the enemy gets stirred up. That's why Paul had to leave all these cities so fast, partly. Look, it's either one of two or three things. It's either a religious spirit, it's a greedy spirit, uh, it's a controlled spirit, however you want to put it that when the truth of God's word comes into contact with, things ignite. He goes on and says about controlling ourselves, not about how to live. He said, well, you're not to live in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. 
and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Um, for those going on the marriage retreat, um, the final, we, we have great teachers at the marriage retreat, and not just because I'm doing it, but, but well beyond that. Um, Brian and Brenda are going to teach on how to walk in spiritual intimacy. Um, Chris and Amy Snow are going to talk about uh, mind, will, and emotions, how to walk in this uh, soul intimacy to build up intimacy in your marriage. And then Kathy and I have the closing um, lesson on sex. So some people are horrified. And some people are really looking forward to it. Uh, to come here, Miss Kathy, uh, leading the children's sermon on sex. So uh, <clears throat> it's going to be great. We've studied a lot for this. We probably studied more for this than any other talk we've ever attempted to do. Um, because throughout the scripture, we see that our physical intimacy, husband and wife, is so critical and important and there is a direct connect between physical intimacy and spiritual holiness and I, I, I don't think you can get away from that issue starting in Genesis 1 and 2 and moving forward so where is the enemy if there's a connect between the development of God's holiness in your life what God's will is his purpose his plan if the enemy can come against you in a way to destruct that, as Paul is saying, he who rejects this instruction about holiness, sexual purity and holiness, does not reject men, but rejects God. If so, if the enemy can do that, this is, right? Are you with, you with me? If this is a place, you're like, oh, my lands of church is just so antiquated and it's few on sexuality. It's just like a, need like eating food. Well, there are some similarities, but there are some major differences. And I think we would be wrong to not acknowledge that, that difference. We're going to talk about that. For those of you who aren't at the marriage retreat, maybe we'll do that talk again. I doubt it, but we'll, we'll see what God will, will do. Here's the point. You can control yourself. You can. Well, you, you can't. But God working his way out through you can. If you'll please God, aim to please him, lean into the power of his presence, you can control yourself. Third point, third point obvious in Christianity 101 is this. Something like this. Love one another. Right? I mean, we know these points. Please, God, control yourself. Love one another. Those are... But Paul must think they're really important because he's writing back to him and taking a lot of time. And he says, now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you. Okay, well, if you don't need to write it, then why are you writing it? For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Doesn't that sound like it's even more important than Paul telling me? 
I don't need to write to you. God himself touched you, told you. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we want to urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Why is Paul going on with this? Because all the world will know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ if you go to church every Sunday, if you tithe on a regular basis, if you keep your, um, just think of any other rule. No, no. The world's going to know you're his disciples by the love we have for one another. The distinguishing mark of the Christian faith is love of God and love of each other. So Paul's saying it again. You're doing great. Do more. Do it more. Here's what's going to happen in this passage coming up. I'm going to feed forward, go through it quickly. It's this. Paul is saying, here are the two ditches on either side of the love issue. One ditch is to not love each other enough. That seems obvious. But the other ditch is a little trickier. And it's this. To love people to the point of enabling them not to do what God has called them to do. He's saying, love sometimes masks itself as enablement. And so I, you, you need to love one another, but sometimes love speaks the truth. Hardly. Difficult. Calling out kind of love. Now, he's not going to go into all those details, but it's all in this passage. Because, I'm, again, I'll feed forward just a little bit. Here's what's happened. Paul talked on the second coming. These people are excited about Jesus coming back. They're so excited they quit their job. You know what? I'm just going to retire. I'm 27 and I'm going to retire and wait for Jesus to come back. Or whatever the case may be. I don't know what age they were. But they're young enough they shouldn't have quit. So they quit their jobs. They're just sitting around. Now they're like, man, I'm hungry. I need some food. I, 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 I need a place to live. I need somebody to take care of me. Do you love me? If you love me, you'll care for me. If you love me, you'll look out after me. And Paul is going to be, start saying, hey, you need to get to work. One of the ways of love is speaking the truth in love to those who need to hear that truth. He's just using that one example. It is apparent in their midst what's going on. And he's going to say this several times coming up. John Stott says this about this passage. True, it is an expression of love to support others who are in need. But it is also an expression of love to support ourselves so as not to need to be supported by others. Maybe some of us should read that again. Right? He's saying it is, it is love to support others. But it's also love to work in a way that I don't have to have the support of others. That is an expression of love. Some of you are looking at me like, I, I, I don't know. Trust me, it is. I trust Paul. Here we go. I'm going to move forward. You'll see it as the passage goes on. First is this. God teaches us to love fellow believers. 
Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. We need to have love for the fellow believers around us. In Romans 5.5, 5, Paul says, he's going to say in the years to come, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his, what? Love. How? Into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts so that we can love others. He teaches us to love fellow believers. And we know this passage as well. We love because God first loved us. So we, need, we understand God teaches us to love fellow believers. Then, then he, he says to us, God wants your love to keep growing. I don't care where your love is for fellow believers today. Well, I do care. But what I mean is it doesn't matter. It can still get better, right? It can still get bigger. It can become more encompassing. It be can become wiser. He goes on and says, and in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you brothers to do so more and more. This is one of those journeys that never ends. The love that we have for other people, fellow believers, it should be growing and growing and growing. Can I let you in on, again, a secret? Some of you are still laughing at the secret I let you in on last week. Yeah. But what a big deal I was in high school. But um, no, the, the older I get, if I'm not careful, it's actually harder to love more and more. You become more and more cynical. You know, the old guys sitting around who you just dismiss because they can say whatever the heck they please now. You know, they're just like, their filters are all gone. So they're just like, Saying whatever. You know why they're saying whatever? Because somehow whatever got in on them. And now the filter that kept them from saying what was really inside is not there anymore. And we just dismiss it as an old man spouting off. I don't want to be that guy. Rather, I would love to be the old guy sitting around on my porch and somebody saying, I want to I talk to him. He just... He just speaks love. He speaks blessing. But I don't think I'm going to get there without really working at it now and let God really develop that love for the brothers even more as it goes along. Um, and here's the uh, final thing. God wants our spiritual family to grow. He wants his family to grow. And so he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we had told you. Now, this passage, I don't hear people saying, that's my life verse. <laughs> you know, almost nobody goes around saying, here's my life verse. I want to live a quiet life, to mind my own business, and to work with my hands. Why? It just goes against our culture too much now. We think the loudest, the most obnoxious, that's the ones who are going to get heard. Those are ones who are going to push forward. Those are going to, I mean, if you watch anything in entertainment, what you learn is the characters who are the most outrageous get the most attention. And the ones that get the most attention get the most money. So they're 
Sometimes I don't think they're really like that. As I've told you, uh, I think I told you six months ago, one of my sons who does tours had an opportunity to um, give a tour to uh, actually Lady Gaga for like three days, skied with her. Now, her persona is outrageous. And so I said to Adam, what was she like? He said, she's the nicest person. She was just kind. We had great conversations. It was just like being with a normal person. But what we know is, if you want to make money and get yourself noticed in an industry, you've got to be totally outrageous. The call of God on our life in order to expand God's kingdom, he, what does ambition drive you to do? This sermon may take longer if y'all don't listen quicker. Um, is this ambition? I mean, the opposite of ambition is the things he lists there. Make it your ambition. I'm going to be ambitious. To do what? Lead a quiet life. I don't know. That's not ambitious. Mind your own business? Come on, Paul. And to work with your hands just as we told you. Goes on and says, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. I mean, this passage, this passage is so countercultural, isn't it? That, hey, we want others to respect us. Why? So that they respect the message. So that they'll hear the message. I've told you before, again, I'll just remind you, when one of my children was playing, I, I was laughing yesterday because uh, my grandson is now playing t-ball. He's five. I think he is actually running in the right direction around the bathe pass, which is about all you can hope for in five-year-old t-ball. Um, I saw a picture. He was, like, at first base, he was the first baseman, and the person was on first, and ball got hit, and rather than standing at first and holding, he just ran with the person. Whoever the person, he just ran. He got so excited. I'm just going to run with them. So, but I remember one of my kids coach pitch or something. I was being like me. I was just being me, yelling at the fence, yelling at my children to go get the ball, do this, do that. You know, just really being me. And someone comes up to me and says, hey, aren't you the pastor at that church? <laughs> Yes, I am. <laughs> you know, it's hard, it's hard to shift from unholy to holy in like that. Incredibly, the person was like, I, I, I've been willing to come. You've seen me. You've seen me. That was not this. That was not living a life that outsiders, I, thought was, I, was I just thought it was incredible. They came to our church for years as a result and loved me all the same. Here's how Paul talks about the Thessalonians later. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busybodies. Wow, he's really 
He, here's his point. If we want our spiritual family to grow, then one of the ways we do this is living a life of quiet, hardworking godliness where we love one another and we avoid sexual immorality because those are the signs of our world that you're really different. I mean, think about it. Even today, if you're avoiding sexual immorality, living a quiet life, working hard, loving people, you will stand out. And stand out in a way, hopefully, that will draw other people to the good news of Jesus Christ that you can share with them. Make it your ambition, people, to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands. That can look like a lot of different things. You don't have to become a carpenter. Praise Jesus. If I had to be the carpenter, uh, uh, we're all in big, big trouble. I failed shop in 10th grade. I could not build a birdhouse. And so... I just wasn't cut out to be the guy that lives with my hands. But he's, what he's saying is, work hard. Whatever you do, work hard. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Lord, I pray this morning that the gospel, your gospel will permeate our hearts and our lives and that, God, we will. Lord, we'll love you. We'll please you, O oh God. We'll learn how to, through the power of the Spirit that indwells us, to control, our, control ourselves. And that the fruit of our lives will be loving others so that the good news of Jesus Christ would go forward from here. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. We glory in you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.